I couldn't be religious and gay. It was impossible. I was being marketed as some sort of like teenage it girl. When a girl kissed me on my 18th birthday, a whole other world opened up to me. I was a minor nuisance. Eight Australians will tell you about the choices that have led them to unexpected places. These are some of the stories you will hear on Let Me Tell You, a podcast where real people tell incredible real stories. Look for Let Me Tell You and follow wherever you get your podcasts. After you cross the Wallagara River Bridge, keep going through 3.7. Keep in mind it's a two-way road. Slow, slow, slow. I'm in the car with my producer, Beth Atkinson Quinton. Go slow and keep an eye out. You may even see a lyrebird. I'm not the ideal person to give directions in a car because I can't drive. But here we are. <gasps> that's a, that's a lyrebird. They run so silly. <laughs> It's like they flap their wings behind them and they're like, run away, run away, run away. We transitioned to dirt roads a while back and we're surrounded by mist. There's every single shade of green you can imagine and lyrebirds darting around the foliage. The trees around me are charred at their base. It's a confronting reminder of the 2020 bushfires. I feel like this is the bridge that Bruce was telling yeah, us about. This is the bridge. We're in East Gippsland, about seven hours out of Melbourne, driving to Bruce Pascoe's farm, Yimbara. Bruce is a Yuan, Bunurong, and Tasmanian man. You've probably heard of Bruce Pascoe. You might know him from his book, Dark Emu. He's an educator, a farmer, and at heart, a humanist. Right now, we're on the coast, on Yuan country. Koala. Koala it's it's kangaroo. <laughs> there's two actually. Oh my god, there's a big one. Oh my god, there's three. There's a whole family. They're looking at us. We are obviously tragic city slickers because we are unable to identify two of the most identifiable animals in Australia. Bruce is cultivating a grain called Mamajanalik, which is Yuan for dancing grass. It's native to Australia, and more specifically, to Yuan country. I don't know much about it, other than that Bruce has baked bread with it. As a sourdough novice, I've been consumed by the idea of a loaf made from mamajanalik, which is why I'm at Yambara. We made it. The car made it, more importantly. Everything is so green and lush and alive. This is blue house on the hill and tin sheds and just kangaroos hanging about and lyrebirds running around everywhere. And I am overwhelmed by how beautiful it smells. I would like to acknowledge that this episode was recorded on the lands of the Yuan people. You will hear the grasses and animals of Yambara Bruce Pascoe's farm. I pay my respects to both elders past and present. It always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Which one's the front door? Hello. 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 
I'm, I'm Beth. Uh, Bruce, how are you? Really nice to meet you. Yeah. Hi, I'm Jess. Nice to meet you. Yeah, Jess. Righto. What are we doing? As we walk into Bruce's house, he starts showing us around. They're all parts of the same story. Yeah. This one is from a cousin of mine in the Lockhart River, uh, Susan Pascoe. Um, so, you know, I feel surrounded by the family. Yeah, that's beautiful. As we set up, Bruce apologises if his house smells fishy. I haven't been in the house for two days, so the last time we were here we were eating crayfish and that's what you can smell. Apparently, he went fishing on the weekend and they had a seafood feast for dinner. We got a crayfish and we had abalone and prawns and mussels and we got so many, we, um, you know, we, we're still eating them. Yeah. I should have brought some. As we're chatting, I notice that Bruce is looking out the window behind me. He feels me watching him and he explains. The country is me and vice versa, you know. It's just... I am part of the country and that's why I'm looking over there because I'm looking at uh, Biran Durandaran, the two plovers, who um, I just find them constantly fascinating. They are super conscious of where I am because they're protecting eggs and, you know, they think I'm clumsy and I'm interested in what they're doing. I turn to look over my shoulder and see two black and white birds... They're dotted in the rolling, grassy hills. I'm surrounded by birds and animals. You know, I've got burro, kangaroos, and um, badala, the uh, little wallaby. They're all around, and I'm just watching them constantly because of the joy it brings. And around here somewhere are the native grasses that Bruce has been cultivating. I don't really know what and where they are yet, but I'm eager to find out. We're probably concentrating on about four. Those four are Mamajanalik, which is dancing grass, Burunalik, kangaroo grass, Manjamanjanalik, weeping grass, and Gararanalik, spear grass. And they're in demand. We're besieged by restaurateurs and bakers who want the products and want the story, but they don't always want to give back. So, why are they in demand now when they're native to Australia? How are native grains like Mamajanalik tangled up in the messy history of Australia? I'm Jess Ho, and this is Bad Taste, a podcast about who we are through the foods we eat. I've been working in food for over a decade and writing about it for years. But why haven't I heard of native grains until now? Naively, I've never even considered that we had grain indigenous to Australia. As I walk down the aisles of the grocer, I scan the shelves and wonder, how much food on these shelves is actually native to Australia? And how many of these companies are First Nations owned? Let's go back two years. We went from a horrible bushfire season into rolling lockdowns. Like most people, I used that time to focus on what's really important, sourdough baking. But 
Unlike most people, I got a head start a decade ago. Only lockdown made me realise how much I was cowboying it before. As the world crumbled around me, I found the process of mixing flour, water and thyme to be a self. Slopping dough around a bowl, learning how to check for visual cues and holding my breath while every loaf baked. It kept me anchored in the moment. It was a distraction and a comfort. But I was faced with stock shortages. People were panic buying and flour in all its forms was stripped from store shelves. So I turned to my friends who are professional bakers to tack on orders for me, and I was surprised by what I got. When I opened the bag, a sweet, rounded, nutty smell would waft from it. It smelled fresh, alive, and the flour didn't look like the flour I was used to. It was sandy in texture, even though it was still white flour. It got me thinking about flour, which, admittedly, I never have before. To me, it's just an ingredient I'd pull from a shelf. A building block. A dead, indestructible, packaged ingredient. But the more I read, the further down the rabbit hole I went. Soil health. Grain varieties. Stone mills, roller mills, extraction levels, nutrition. There was just so much I didn't know or understand. At the same time, there were a bunch of articles on Bruce. He was cultivating these native grains that are more tolerant to bushfires and drought. I became a human possessed. It made so much sense. Why have Australians not already done this? It seemed crazy that I didn't know the flavour of a grain that has always been in our soil. Crazier still that it's not available on supermarket shelves. And that's what I'm here to find out. Normally, we, we start work at 8 o'clock and we do the normal farm duties of looking after our crops. So some of our crops are, are new, so we're weeding them until they get established and then they'll look after themselves. But as young plants, uh, we're having to defend them against the invading plants. There's a bit of a metaphor there. Bruce has been researching Aboriginal systems of food production and land management for years. His book, Dark Emu, challenges the accepted myth that Aboriginal Australians were nomadic hunter-gatherers. Instead, he details how First Nations food practices have been blatantly ignored from history books. And through his research, he found that Aboriginal people were the world's first bakers. When I found that out, I cried. Because I thought, what a bloody insult to our intellect to have had this knowledge in this country and have either not to join the dots together or to refuse to join the dots together. So there was a grinding dish found um, that was 36,000 years old and they put it in a plastic bag and stored it in a museum and then ages later someone said, well, perhaps we should look at this grinding dish and looked at the grinding dish and it had traces of flour in it and they aged the grinding dish and it was 36,000 years old. Not the dish itself, but the flour in it. So I included that in Dark Emium and just as we were at the last proofing stage, 
there was another stone found in Kakadu, Mujibibi, and it was 65,000 years old. The team that analysed that grinding stone found that the wear marks on the stone were consistent with seed grinding. So what Bruce is saying is that people were grinding seeds at least 65,000 years ago in Australia. I looked up Google, as everyone does, and the first bread makers were the Egyptians 18,000 years ago. And, you know, I failed Form 3 maths, but I could work this out, that Aboriginal people have been making bread twice as long as anyone else on Earth, at least. This is incredible. The world's first bakers. Why isn't this common knowledge? So I went back to find out more info, and what I found was pretty amazing. After Bruce's book Convincing Ground was published in 2007, he received hundreds of letters from fourth-generation farmers and other Aboriginal people that led him to the journals and diaries of early colonists. In these, he found evidence of Aboriginal agricultural systems, irrigation networks, and even housing. This research eventually became his book, Dark Emu. He gathered information about harvest, storage, and threshing. He then used those techniques with his own crops of native grains. Once harvested, he experimented with ways to cook the grain. It involved a lot of trial and error, but it paid off. Bruce tells me about the first loaf of bread he made with the first batch of grain he grew. Oh, look, I remember that day. It happened over there, sensational, you know, to have that very day harvested the, the grain, turned it into flour, and made the bread, with everyone standing around, drinking beer and wine, and just waiting for the loaf to come out, then to bring the loaf out, stick it on the table and put the knife through it. That was just incredible. We were proud and relieved because, you know, if it was rubbish, you know, <laughs> you know, you'd be really disappointed. Bruce is concentrating on cultivating four varieties of native grain. And I'm desperate to know what Mamajanalik tastes like. Um, what, just a moment. Um, um, we made a loaf of bread. That's 60% what conventional wholemeal, mm-hmm. and um, 35% of our grain. It's a couple of days old, but the smell is pronounced. It's yeasty like beer, but also with a deeper, richer scent like rye. Mamaja Naluk. That's weeping grass, that one. And it makes a dark, makes a really dark bread. So if it's so delicious, why is Bruce only harvesting enough grain to make bread at home? One of the major grains that we harvest here is very difficult grass to handle because to separate the awn from the grain is is difficult process. It's tricky. You know, it's not impossible. It's just tricky. So why did Aboriginal people choose to use it? Because it's good for you. Aboriginal people chose it for its health benefits, not for its ease of production. To go from the seed in the ground to the grain in your bowl is hard work. But native grains have adapted to the Australian soil and climate. They're low maintenance. 
As Bruce says, Aboriginal people have always used fire as a tool for land management. They use backburning as a way to encourage the regeneration of these native grasses and promote biodiversity. Burning also helps to reduce scrub, which often fuels Australia's intense bushfires. They're perennial plants. They'll look after themselves from here on in. And one of the great attributes of these plants is that you don't need to do anything to them. They just love Australia. They love our rainfall, nutrition in the soil, which is not great, but that's what they've adapted to over millions of years. This is the thing that's going to save Australia's water. If this is going to save Australia's water, why haven't we considered doing this years ago? Racism. Colonialism. Only five or six years ago, the Victorian Education Department were bringing out a policy which said that school teachers should start talking about invasion rather than settlement. The world was about to implode. You know, the radios melted down because people couldn't abide the thought that we would talk about invasion instead of settlement because that's the Australian sentiment is all about settlement, 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 not invasion and theft. So all of these things are preventing us from looking at Aboriginal culture and agriculture. And that is the greatest impediment. Bruce takes me outside to show me the Mamajanaluk and to meet his duck, Sir Francis. He points out the different plants around his garden. Now, that's an introduced plant. It's a weed, agricultural weed. And shows me a leafy plant with fuchsia-tipped leaves. When this plant grew, our people loved everything. The old people, they watched this thing growing and they go, who are you? Who are you? Where you come from? And what they found was that it, it has on it a red berry and it has a real deep stained dye. So the old people said, oh, you're an interesting thing. We're on this vast, beautiful and expansive farm with rolling hills and trees in the distance. But I've got no idea where these native grains and grasses are. Bruce leads the way out of his garden and over to a hill. And I'm having my Julie Andrews moment. So when we burn, we come back to this grass. This is what'll come up. And that's Mamajanaluk, dancing grass. Look at it, in the, in the wind. Look at it. That's our word for it is dancing grass, Mamajanaluk. It's easy to miss Mamajanaluk. I had no idea I'd been looking at it my whole life. You've probably seen it. It's a long, thin stalk with wisps of seeds, and it really does dance in the wind, hence the name. And look at its little seed. The seed is very small. This is what our country wants to produce. This is what Mother Earth says, with all the rain I get here and all the the little nutrition that's in the soil, this is what I can grow. This is what I can give you, right? 
So we can't say, oh no, we're not satisfied with that. We want you to do this or we want you to do that. So we're going to add water, we're going to add superphosphate. No, this is what she wants to do. Now that I know what it looks like, it was everywhere I grew up. I remember picking these seeds out of my runners and not knowing any better. And how was I to know better? I was being educated within a colonialist framework. To me, the tiny seeds were just an inconvenience, not a plant that was culturally and nutritionally significant for you and people. And while Bruce and his team are cultivating these grasses, it's not on a commercial scale yet, but that's what they want. And that's why Bruce has created his company, Black Duck Foods. Black Duck Foods was an idea that my son and I had in order to protect the intellectual properties of those foods. First Nations people have been dispossessed time and time again. So Bruce and his son want to make sure that this sacred knowledge of cultivating mamajanaluk is treated with respect and that these farming practices continue to be led by his community. We can't rely on the goodwill of Australians. We have to do something active ourselves. We have to be in that market. We have to demand our right to be involved in this industry. People say very airily, oh, Aboriginal people were such wise and beautiful people and had a special relationship with the earth. I'm happy for people to say that, but bloody believe it and bloody do something about it. If you believe that, that special relationship, make sure it can continue and make sure it can continue in the same hands, that Aboriginal people have this opportunity to be involved in this new industry, and that's what it will be, this new agricultural industry where those grains become second nature to Australians. Black Duck Foods is a social enterprise, but it's still in its infancy. It's in the process of learning how to commercialise products, protect cultural knowledge and make money. It's a Western-style system and it drives me to distraction. I hate it. But it has to be done. And we, we try to do it as culturally sensitive as we can. So it's a reluctance participation in capitalism. Yeah, yeah, we all, we all make compromises. You know, I've got milk in a plastic bottle. It's not what I want. But until we can come up with something better, that's what we'll be buying. But we have to find a better way. As we leave Bruce's farm, I have even more questions. Native grains like mamajanaluk are being grown and Bruce has big dreams for it. But how many other companies like Black Duck Foods exist? I started doing more research and I found out only 2% of the Australian bush food industry is Indigenous owned. I'm starting to understand why this is such an important endeavour for Bruce. So what are the steps to get these native grains into Australian supermarkets and pantries? Yama, my name's Jacob Birch. And my project Jacob Birch is a Gamilaroi man based on the Sunshine Coast of Queensland. He's the project manager for Black Duck Foods and is also a researcher with years of experience looking into native grains. 
It's always just been northern hemisphere crops we've mostly been interested in. In Australia, the most popular grains being grown are wheat and barley. They originate from the Middle East and they made their way around the world through Egypt, Europe and China. So when we think about foods like bread and pasta, the grains used to make these products aren't indigenous to Australia. Australian grown doesn't necessarily mean it's Australian grain. We haven't had the luxury of 10,000 years of breeding like wheat or barley and development of equipment. We just imported stuff from Europe. So we don't want to keep talking about it and that's the whole point of this research development. He is in charge of the industry roadmap for the future of native grains. As part of his research, for the last few years, Jacob's been yarning with a bunch of people who have a stake in this industry, from farmers to traditional owners and even retailers. His aim is to pull all the different localised knowledge into a national snapshot of the industry, hopefully to create a path forward. There's so much research going on out there but it's all in isolation. There's no coordination or collaboration. People doing their own little pockets of research and being very protective and secretive of what they're doing. And that's not First Nations way. First Nations way of doing business is sharing a lot of collaboration. So we know that someone like Bruce wants to help grow the industry. But with different kinds of grain growing in different parts of the country, do all First Nations people actually want to commercialise it? Yeah, it's such a diversity. You know, we've got 300 language groups, all the dialects within those language groups. Some people see the commercial value in it. And we would want to sell the product for a commercial return because this is also about food sovereignty. If we can do these grains and get a return while at the same time we're caring for country and we're caring for our communities and revitalising culture. Yeah, like that'd be awesome. You need to be able to financially support yourself too. Food security and food sovereignty is dismal in this country for First Nations people. And this reminds me of the macadamia nut, the most recognised Australian native food that's commercially available. It's indigenous to northern New South Wales, southern and central Queensland. But now it's in supermarkets and airports worldwide. It's also been exported and cultivated in Hawaii and South Africa. I wonder how much of the profits go back to First Nations people in Australia? This is what Bruce and Jacob mean when they speak about the importance of food industries being First Nations-led. That's another reason why we need some sort of body set up representing best interests of First Nations people to make sure that it stays on the vision because, yeah, otherwise it will just be commodified, bits and pieces of it. So we need to keep that strong First Nations governance so that we can keep it on track to be this vehicle of change that we want it to be. Gamilaroi people, like Ewan people, have intangible cultural links to the grasses and grains they produce that are specific to their country. For me, my favourites, and this is, this is the ones that I have the cultural connection to, is Gunalay, which is the Mitchell grasses. Mitchell grass is just this, like, humble little grass 
that you find in the rangelands. And I think from like northern Victoria, northwestern Victoria, all up through South Australia, Northern Territory, Queensland, New South Wales, across the Northern Territory into WA. And for me, that's going to be the most important crop. So I think that's going to really put Australia on the map and change this whole narrative. It's ridiculously nutritious. This stuff is a superfood. So it's proteins in the high 20s. So low carbs, which are substituted by high protein which is good for vegetarians and vegans for people trying to have more of a plant-based diet. It's one of the species with a really, really high calcium. It's got more than twice the amount of calcium as cow's milk. Really good ratios with the uh, other similar elements like magnesium and phosphorus. So when you mill this stuff up, even unmilled, it's got this really sweet, malty aroma to it and it cooks up beautifully as well. I remember seeing a picture of the native grain belt when I read Dark Emu. It's huge. Imagine a massive arc travelling from the bottom of Western Australia up through the Northern Territory and finishing around the bottom of Victoria. It even covers parts of South Australia. But if we look at where Northern Hemisphere grains are grown, it's only in small, isolated pockets of four states. One way I sort of saw that, in encouraging that, is like embracing this biocultural, bioregional food story in Australia. Like countries like France and Italy, such small countries in comparison to Australia, yet they have so much diversity like within their regions around food. Every little region has its own type of wine, its own type of cheese, its own specialty meals, all of this stuff, each region. And people travel through these places to experience all of this this food trail and this food experience, this, the culture around food. For example, if you are on Gamilaroi, that bioregional, biocultural food is going to be Gunalay bread, for example. But then if you go down to Ewan country, it's completely different. If you're in Gamilaroi, you might have some, I don't know, emu egg on Gunalay bread, for example, but you go down on Ewan country and you could have like seafood on your mandadi and yaluk, which is their dancing grass. I think there's power in just doing bread, maybe to start with, because there's this whole idea of breaking bread. It's a powerful metaphor to break bread. So the literal multi-million dollar question is, when will the average Australian be able to buy these native grains off the shelf? This roadmap's going to drop and, you know, Fingers crossed we're going to articulate this well enough and signpost it well enough that you will have a product that you can purchase in 10 years. As part of the roadmap, they're developing blockchain technology. Basically, when you grab something off a shelf, there'll be a QR code you can scan that will tell you what it is, where it came from, and who was involved in the production. To protect the provenance of the product and protect the story of the product, Native grains have sustained us for 60,000 years. So we have to make sure that it's not appropriated and manipulated and it's not dispossessing First Nations people. I wanted to know more about native grains after staring into a bag of flour ground from introduced seed. My original question was about access. 
But after a trip to Ewan country to meet with Bruce, and a virtual trip to Gamilaroi country with Jacob, my thinking has changed pretty dramatically. I didn't really understand exactly how colonial farming practices impacted Indigenous food production and what it means for what we find on the shelves today. I've been raised in a food system that constantly compares parts of Australia to Europe. Heathcote is Italian. Tasmania is Burgundian. It makes so much sense that Australia has its own complex food history. But I guess I never appreciated it. These comparisons are part of an ongoing colonial framework that tries to replicate a European way of eating onto this country, rather than celebrating it for its own distinct uniqueness. Colonisation, in my mind, was always genocide, a displacement of people, erasure of culture and theft of land. But I never considered how it impacted food history. And many First Nations people are still trying to recover that knowledge today, like Bruce and Jacob trying to reclaim the narrative around their foods and the commercialisation of it. Even though I started with that bag of flour, I'm ending with a deeper understanding of regionality and the power and potential of a seed. In a decade, when I buy Mamajanaluk or Gunalay, I'll be sure to check the label, scan the QR code, and confirm the Indigenous-owned certification, hopefully amongst an array of other native foods. If you keep listening after the credits, I'll give you the fastest recipe for bread you've ever heard. Bad Taste is an SBS podcast. It's hosted and produced by Jess Ho. Our executive producer is Michelle Macklem. Our series producer is Beth Atkinson Quinton. Our producer is Bez Zodare. Our editor is Zoe Tennant. And I'm Nicole Pingon, the sound designer. Thanks to our old ball and grain, the SBS team. Rachel Sibley, Carolyn Gates, Joel Supple, and mix engineer Max Godsford. Our theme music is Leng Leng by Rainbow Chan. Our podcast art is by Johanna Hu. Thanks to Bruce Pascoe and Jacob Birch, plus special thanks to Miyuki Okiranta for her editorial insights. We're back next week with more episodes that definitely aren't crummy, so make sure you follow Bad Taste in your favourite podcast app so you get every episode hot and fresh out of the oven and straight onto your device. If you enjoyed the show and want to support us, stop loafing around. Follow SBS and SBS Food on your socials to see our appetising episode art and hit the share button. It's the yeast you can do. This is a recipe for standard sourdough with 20% rye. When native grains become available, sub the rye flour for the native grains. You'll need 100 grams of rye flour, 400 grams of baker's flour, 350 grams of water, 10 grams of salt, and 100 grams of active starter. Dump your flours in a bowl with the water and mix it until it's shaggy. Cover with a damp towel and stand for 30 minutes. Add your starter and mix. Add your salt and mix. Fold until you can make a smooth ball and cover. Bulk for four hours, doing four sets of stretch and folds spaced out over that time. Pre-shape, sit for 30 minutes, shape, put your dough in a banneton and proof. Bake at 240 degrees in a preheated cast iron, covered for 20 minutes and then eight minutes uncovered, or until the crust is your desired color. Cool completely before you slice into it. 
For the full recipe and instructions, head to our website on sbs.com.au slash bad taste.